0: Hello, and welcome to my podcast. This is an audio version of my videos available to make listening to my stuff in the background easier than YouTube makes it. But since my videos are primarily made for YouTube, there may be occasional references to visual materials. If you'd like this podcast ad free, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to my channel. Vice Rhino here. Today, I'm looking at Mike Riddle's latest video on the Creation Training Initiative's YouTube channel. It's a video of his that asks the question Is there evidence for God? I've been tackling a lot of these lately and thought that while I'm at it, I'll get the hardcore creationist perspective on the subject because a lot of the typical arguments for God are largely incompatible with the young earth creationist view. So it's always fun to point that out. So let's go!
1: When we talk about the Bible in creation, many times a very important challenge will come up about the existence of God. Christians might ask the question in this way.
0: What is our best evidence for the existence of God? Aside from the word are there? Why is that specifically a Christian phrasing of the question? I might ask the question the same way, but replace our with your. So what is your best evidence for the existence of God? Non-believers will
1: ask it in a more challenging manner, such as, show me any evidence that God exists.
0: If that is what you consider challenging, then I think you've got more important things to worry about than apologetics. So how do we answer this challenge? What is
1: the best evidence for the existence of God?
0: Ooh, I know. It's the fact that Pat Robertson is still alive. Or that the guys who are puppeting his corpse weekend at Bernie's style haven't been caught yet. We will begin by laying a foundation for our answer. There have
1: been many answers to this challenge in the past, such as the evidence from design,
0: Which has many variations, my favorite of which, when talking to young Earth creationists, is the universal constants thing, where there are all these cosmological constants that, should they be altered by even a little bit, that would cause the universe to look very different and life as we know it would not be possible. The main issue with this argument, aside from the fact that we don't even know if it's possible for the universal constants to be different, is the anthropic principle. Of course, life as we know it would evolve in a universe capable of sustaining life as we know it. Had the universe been different, different life might have developed. And as apologists will tell you, there are potentially infinite variations on how the universe could have turned out, which in turn tells you that you also have an infinite number of potential variations on how life could have turned out. But it's my favorite for creationists because the whole thing relies on old ages for the universe and the possibility of evolution. It's all about how we'd get the right types of stars for creating the elements that we need for the potential evolution of life out of the results of the Big Bang. So this version of the teleological argument assumes that young Earth creationism is wrong in order to work. But young Earth creationists often fail to notice that fact and so use it anyway. The evidence from archaeology. Well, the evidence from archaeology says that the exodus from Egypt never happened, nor did the census from Jesus birth story and the whole history of the Hebrews up until the Babylonian exile is hit or miss at best. So yeah, archeology span doesn't really support your interpretation of the Bible. But even if it did, even if every event from the Bible that could have archeological evidence supporting it did actually have archeological evidence supporting it, that wouldn't say anything about the supernatural claims that go along with the archaeological evidence. A bunch of slaves fled Egypt one time is a far cry from a slave baby was floated in a basket to into the Pharaoh's daughter's house where she adopted him, raised him. And then after he killed a dude, he ran away for a few years, then came back and turned the entire Nile River into blood before having all the Egyptian firstborn kids killed. And when push comes to shove, there's no evidence for the bunch of slaves fleeing Egypt in the first place, so the rest of the story becomes even more suspect. The first cause argument, also
1: known as the cosmological argument, meaning everything that exists must have a
0: first cause, which means that if God exists, he needs a first cause since he is the first cause and does not need one, then that means he must not exist. QED. Okay, that's just me poking fun at Mike's awkward rephrasing. Pay better attention to Dr. Craig, Mike. The word begins is very important for that argument. It's how you're supposed to make an attempt to wiggle out of the special pleading that's inherent in the non-Kalam versions of the argument. Of course, that doesn't entirely fix the argument, you know, because of the whole flawed premises thing, but it does patch it up a bit. According to scripture, none of these are our best argument for the existence of God. Does scripture tell you what arguments to use? I'm curious, I wasn't aware that the Bible endorsed any specific argument. The Bible is our best argument (sighs) for sake. Why would you expect anyone to take that seriously?
1: So to answer the challenge, we will take a four step approach. Why we should start with the Bible and not science or our
0: wisdom. Well, doesn't that just tell you all you need to know about this guy? He basically just flat out said, don't think for yourself. Let the book do your thinking for you. Now, I get that the target audience for these videos are other creationists. It's the creation training initiative, after all. But if that name is anything to go by, you're supposed to be training them to deal with objections. And if they respond to a non-believer's objection with a statement like that, that amounts to don't think, just do what the book says, then that will definitely serve to drive more people away than it will pull people in. Step one, arguing from a power position. Romans 1
1: 16 states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the
0: Greek. Well, what about me? I'm neither Jew nor Greek. Kidding aside, starting with the Bible is not the power move you think it is. If anything, such tactics will make the person you're having the conversation with more likely to dismiss your position out of hand. Because let's be real here, if your evidence that the Bible is true is because the Bible says it is, nobody's going to take that seriously unless they already believe that the Bible is true.
2: 18 plus.
1: In Hebrews 4.12, we read, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart.
0: So you're saying that we're all going to be penetrated by God's double-edged sword? Ooh.
1: In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness.
0: So what is the lesson that is to be learned from Ezekiel 23:20? 20 and lusted after her lovers there whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses? Or how about all the long, boring chapters that are just lists of people having kids like Genesis 5? especially when contrasted with verses like Titus 3, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 4, both of which seem to condemn genealogies, with Timothy in particular explaining that a teacher devoted to endless genealogies is a false teacher. Though, to be fair, this probably is more of a condemnation of apostolic succession than it is a warning against genealogies in the Old Testament or the New Testament ones that lead to Jesus. For that matter, apostolic succession is the idea that the apostles pass spiritual authority onto the next generation through who they choose as the next leaders. That's the Catholic Church's reasoning behind the papacy. They claim that the succession of popes is an unbroken line going all the way back to the original twelve disciples of Jesus. Of course, the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Anglicans, Moravians and several other denominations all have their own version of apostolic succession and deny the validity of the other versions. So it ends up coming down to a genealogy fight. This is actually one of the ways we know that the book wasn't written by Paul. It teaches things and counters other teachings that are directly relevant to the emergence of the Catholic Church, which didn't exist in Paul's time. But that's not really relevant to the point. The point here is that there's plenty in the Bible that is not useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting or training in righteousness. In fact, there's a lot in the Bible that would lead to the opposite of these things. All scripture is good for training someone in righteousness. So obviously the passages that tell you who you're allowed to keep as a slave, how to sell your daughter as a sex slave, how much you're allowed to beat your slaves, etc., are all for training you in righteousness. I don't know about you, Mike, but I consider slavery to be a rather unrighteous practice. The Bible disagrees. And then in John
1: 17, 17, we read, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word
0: is truth. If your word here is referring to the Bible, then no, there's lots in the Bible that is demonstrably untrue. Even you, Mike, don't think that the earth stands on pillars like it says in First Samuel two, eight or in Job nine, six. And mustard seeds are not nor were they in Jesus time, the smallest of all seeds, as it says in Matthew 13. Even if we limit ourselves to plants in first century Judea, the black orchid is the plant with the smallest seeds at that time. And of course, these are just problems in the common English translations of the Bible. There is a good deal of ambiguity in the text that leads to conflicting translations where the original meaning has been lost to history. A good example of this is Genesis 316, where depending on which translation you're reading, the woman's desire will be toward her husband or contrary to her husband. These are literal opposites. But because of how ancient Hebrew works, it could go either way. The apologist who argues for biblical inerrancy would have us believe that the original texts are inerrant, but our translations are capable of injecting flaws into the text. And that's why the Bible appears flawed. Which really makes me question the competency of this God guy. Why would he allow his perfect word to be so easily corruptible? Why would he allow our understanding of the language that his texts were written in to wane to the point where we can no longer tell from context whether a word is supposed to mean toward or the exact opposite of toward? If we believe God's word is truth, then we should
1: use it as our strongest weapon against untruth. We should rely on it
0: over our own wisdom. If you believe that God's word is truth, then by extension, you should also believe that it will withstand any test of its truthfulness. And so it should be a piece of cake to demonstrate that it actually is true. You shouldn't be afraid of questioning the accuracy of the Bible. You should just be able to show that it is accurate. Of course, this only applies if it actually is accurate and true. If it's not, then, yeah, starting with the unquestionable assumption that it is true and accurate really is the only way you'll be able to end up at that conclusion.
1: Step two, everyone knows. Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20 states that everyone knows God exists.
0: Congratulations, you have now conclusively proven to atheists that your God does not exist. Because if your God exists and your God said that everyone knows that he exists, but I do not know that he exists, then that means that your God was wrong. And since your God can't be wrong, that must mean that your God does not exist. Just some friendly advice here. This verse is completely useless for proselytizing. All it can possibly accomplish is to reassure people who already believe. But using it for that purpose sets them up for future failure. Because if it really is true and people have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, there are two options. The first is that they are aware that they are suppressing the truth, in which case pointing it out to them will most likely result in further suppression. The second is that they are subconsciously suppressing the truth and so are unaware that they are doing it, in which case pointing it out to them will reinforce their idea that your religion is the wrong one and result in further suppression. So if you really, truly believe that that verse is accurate, then you should stop using it. At least if your goal is to actually gain converts rather than just reinforcing the beliefs of existing believers. And we read this. Because that which is known about
1: God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without
0: excuse. My excuse is that this God guy is a dick. On top of that, he's a dick with a double standard. In Isaiah 41, the test for gods that are not him is to bring proof. Show us what your God is capable of. Get your God to perform for us so that we can see that your God is real. But what's the test for the God that actually is real? How dare you? Do you not know that it is written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? Why the double standard here? From the atheist perspective, the double standard seems to be to protect God from scrutiny. You're allowed to test the gods that the Bible claims doesn't exist because the authors could be confident that those gods would not perform on command. But the problem is that the real God doesn't perform on command either in much the same way as a non-existent God wouldn't perform. So since this is the quote unquote real God, why is it that his performance is equal to that of a non-existent God? Well, obviously it can't be that God doesn't exist. It must just be that God doesn't approve of the hubris required to test him. Yeah, that's it.
2: With the Lucky Lands slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky.
2: Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: What that means is everyone who has ever lived and everyone living today knows God
0: exists. If that's true, then why has Christianity never once spontaneously developed in a culture? That would be a really good way to demonstrate that the Bible verses like this are accurate to have Christianity arrive in a culture before Christian missionaries get there, complete with matching scripture and everything. You already believe that God wrote the Bible through Revelation. Why would he only do it in a tiny fraction of the world? Would providing an identical book to every culture in their own native language not be an incredibly easy thing for God to do? And that would give credibility to this verse such that even if I were suppressing the truth in my unrighteousness, I would have to pause and consider how it is possible that so many different cultures all developed the same religion independently. But no, it spreads in the exact manner you would expect any of the non true religions to spread.
1: And they have no excuse
0: for not believing. That verse is my excuse for not believing because I know what goes on in my own head. And I know that that verse is wrong about what goes on in my head.
1: Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 21 states
0: that unbelievers
1: willfully suppress the truth about God
0: which rings hollow to pretty much every former Christian I know. It's a very common story among atheists. I was a Christian, and when I was deconverting, I fought against it as hard as I could, begging and pleading with God to reveal himself to me. But despite my best efforts, he remained as silent as a non-existent God would. That is not suppressing knowledge of God in unrighteousness. That is earnestly seeking God and finding that God behaves in the same way as a non-existent God would.
1: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened.
0: Yeah, no, that's not how it happened. But I mean, obviously I just wasn't a true Christian or I'd still be one. How convenient.
1: The Bible teaches that everyone knows God
0: exists, but some choose to ignore that truth. And making claims like that will only serve to reinforce the unbeliever's unbelief. Step three,
1: it is written, or the authority
0: of scripture. Truly, I tell you, the Bible is true because the Bible says the Bible is true, and the Bible's true, so it's true when it says it's true.
1: 30 times in the gospels, we read the phrase, it is written. Each time Jesus used the authority of scripture to refute non-belief
0: and error. In most cases, it was to counter points that were being made by fellow believers that Jesus thought were an error. Hell, in the part where Jesus is being tempted by Satan, are you going to tell me that Satan does not believe in God? In Matthew, Chapter four,
1: verses one through eleven, Satan, the devil, confronts Jesus. In each temptation,
0: Jesus responds with, it is written. Right, Satan. Are you calling Satan an unbeliever? The devil, former angel of God, doesn't believe that God exists?
1: Jesus did not use anything new. He used scripture to refute temptations, attacks, and lies.
0: But he also performed magic tricks to prove that he had magical powers that he claimed were given to him by God. He didn't just quote scripture, he provided evidence. John, in particular, is often explicit about the fact that Jesus is performing miracles specifically so people will believe, including that time he healed the blind guy who, according to Jesus' own words, was made to live his entire childhood and presumably a good chunk of his adult life blind, specifically so that Jesus could heal him to reveal God's works. So not only did Jesus provide evidence when he felt it was necessary, he created suffering specifically so that he could alleviate that suffering while showing off. You'd think God could perform signs and wonders without having to make a guy suffer for so long first.
1: And then step four, the existence of God. We believe God exists because the Bible teaches in the very first verse that he exists.
0: So if I may, I will proceed to summarize steps one through four in proving the existence of God to a non-believer. Bible, 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 Bible,
2: Bible, Therefore, God, is that about right? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.
0: In other words, God existed before the universe was created. So did the super god who immediately eats all the gods who create universes and then pretends to be that god for a while as entertainment before getting bored and leaving that universe to its own devices. Since this God, by definition, eats gods who create universes, then your God was eaten and the God you are worshipping is actually this God eating super God, who at this point has become bored with our universe. And that's why miracles don't happen anymore. The Bible never attempts to prove God's existence. The Lord of the Rings books never attempt to prove the existence of hobbits. What's your point? The Bible assumes his existence in the very first verse. And the Hobbit assumes the existence of hobbits in the very first sentence. Does that mean you're willing to believe in the existence of hobbits on the word of this series of books? Tolkien never provided any proof of the existence of hobbits, but the whole story just assumes that they're real. What's the difference here? The difference is that of genre, of course. The Hobbit is a work of fiction. It's not meant to be taken as historically accurate. Well, Genesis is. That's a difficult question. It's certainly not written as a history. That genre hadn't even been invented at that point. And it's probably not poetry, though it does have some poetic elements. So what is it? Well, as I read through it with my daughter, link to that podcast in the description, I am struck by how etiological it is. That is, the whole book so far seems to be concerned with providing a mythological framework for the origins of various things. Sure, there's the well-known ones like Genesis 3 explaining why childbirth hurts, why snakes don't have legs, and why farming is hard. Genesis 4 goes on to tell us that people with musical talent must be descended from this Jubal guy. And everyone who has a knack for tending livestock must be descended from this Jabal guy. And Tubal Cain is the guy who invented bronze and iron forging move on. And when we get to the Noah story, we get the origin of some of the great nations of the time. Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan are all Noah's grandsons who founded their respective nations. But why do different people from different places speak different languages? Well, because of the Tower of Babel, of course, and so on. Of course, we know from things like archaeology that nations were not founded by individual people like that, but from groups of people as they developed methods of stabilizing their food supply, like agriculture. If you have a stable food supply, then some of the population are now free to develop other trades, with governments emerging as rulers gain control over larger areas. Fun fact, although religion likely developed rather organically as a byproduct of our brain's tendency to see agency in things that don't necessarily have agency, it is an undeniable fact of history that religion was definitely used as a control mechanism, creating a social hierarchy and simplifying the management of even larger areas of people. So while I am not of the opinion that religion was deliberately invented by the ruling class as a control mechanism, it is undeniable that it was used as such, and the Bible is no exception here. We believe God exists
1: because Psalm 19.1 teaches that the universe is the result of His works and not
0: evolution. Psalm 19.1 is the Heavens Declare the Glory of God verse. Unsurprisingly, it doesn't actually say anything about evolution. And really, if God invented evolution, that would be a lot more impressive to me than if he actually designed everything himself. Evolution is a fascinating process that is capable of spontaneously producing some amazing organisms. But if God designed everything himself, then God is lazy, copying and pasting similar structures into different organisms and tweaking them just a little bit to be adequate, but suboptimal for survival in the environments in which he was placing them. And this extends to humans as well. Our spines are adapted for quadrupedal locomotion, which is why you're pretty much guaranteed to develop back pain as you get older. And there's no word yet as to why he decided we need the gene for producing vitamin C without having to ingest it, but the gene is broken so that we can get scurvy rather easily. Etc., etc., etc. And
1: finally, we believe God exists because without a creator God, nothing could
0: exist. How do you know that? More to the point, how could a creator God exist without a creator God creator? The argument has now shifted. The burden of proof for the
1: existence of God is not on the Christian to prove because the Bible, God's word, assumes it
0: from the very beginning. Assuming something to be true without any evidence to back it up does not automatically shift the burden of proof to the person defending the null hypothesis. It just makes you look like you're dogmatically tied to your ideas and won't even bother to give a good reason for your belief, as 1 Peter 315 commands you to do.
1: The burden of proof is on the
0: unbeliever to prove why anything at all exists. That's not how the burden of proof works. The unbeliever just has to observe that things exist. And now we have evidence that things exist. I do not, as an atheist, say that I know why something exists instead of nothing. That is an unanswered question at this time. It may never be answered. And an unanswered question is not a claim. But when you try to answer the question by claiming that everything exists because of God, then you are in fact making a claim. This means that you have the burden of proof for supporting that claim. Saying that you just believe it because book doesn't shift the burden of proof back to the person who just has an unanswered question. It just makes you look ignorant. As an analogy, if I make a claim that says there is life on an exoplanet within 40 light years of Earth, Even if I have a book that agrees with that claim, if I refuse to provide evidence, nobody has any obligation to prove me wrong. The correct answer at this time is that we don't know. Me bolstering this baseless claim with a book does not suddenly shift the burden of proof onto those who say they don't know. It's on me to demonstrate that the claim has merit. Being published in a book does not automatically give it merit, even if the book really, really says that it's a true book and that anyone who disagrees knows that they're wrong, they're just in Nile. It is up to the
1: unbeliever to demonstrate using empirical science that is observable and repeatable science how the universe came into existence and this cannot be done.
0: Even if you're right, at best this is an argument from ignorance. We can't figure out exactly how the universe began, therefore God. And really, the beginning of the universe is kind of irrelevant when it comes to the question of God. I know Mike doesn't like it, but we know the Big Bang happened. We've demonstrated that with some good old observable and repeatable science. So yes, we do know that the Big Bang happened about 13.7 billion years ago, and we don't know what came before it. The apologist would have us stop looking into it and just leave the answer as God. But fortunately for us, human curiosity tends to be dissatisfied with God as the answer to scientific questions. So our research into the matter is not going Going to stop anytime soon.
1: Based on good science and logic, we know nothing cannot
0: create something. Really? There's good science behind that? Have you ever observed nothing? Have you ever had a sample of nothing? Have you ever been able to study nothing to see how it behaves? Can you even show that there was a time when nothing actually existed? No. Now intuitively, that statement does make sense, but our intuitions didn't evolve to figure out cosmology, our intuitions evolved to keep us alive on the African plains. So we definitely cannot trust that our intuition is accurate when it comes to cosmology.
1: Therefore, the unbeliever is left with assumptions, hypotheses, and
0: faith that somehow the universe began to exist. Firstly, we have a lot more evidence for the Big Bang than you have for the Genesis story. And secondly, you proudly declared several times throughout this video that you don't even want to engage with the question, does God exist? You just want to start with that as an unquestionable assumption. So if both really are based entirely on assumptions and faith, I'm going to go with the scientific models for the early universe, because Occam's razor would have us make as few assumptions as possible. And the creation model has all the same assumptions as the scientific model, but with a a bunch of extra assumptions added on top, not just about the existence of God, but also about his temperament, his preferences, his behaviors, his willingness to selectively alter the laws of nature and so on.
1: And now our conclusion, without a creator God, nothing could exist. The universe does exist. Therefore, there must be a creator God, and he has made himself known
0: to everyone. That is a syllogism, not a conclusion. It does contain a conclusion, sure. But as a whole, it is a syllogism. I mean, that being said, the first premise of your syllogism presupposes the conclusion. So I guess you could say that it's just a conclusion. But really, without a creator god, nothing could exist. Well, I say that without a creator god creator, no creator god could exist. So my creator god creator beats your creator god by virtue of the fact that it has the ability to create creator gods. That's it for this one. Today's comment of the day comes to us from Fuzz the Fur, who says, Why does he pronounce it burial instead of burial? It's weird. Well, I think it's an Alberta thing. Gia pronounces it that way, too, the place where Jesus was buried. But maybe it's a more widespread Canadian thing. And I'm the one with the weird accent because apparently Calvin is from Guelph, Ontario. I thought he was from Alberta, but maybe I'm just weird. Thanks for watching. Special thanks as always to my patrons, Mark McManus, Mark Hetcham, Clen Cheesewood, Lynn Dobbs, What Jesus, and all the rest, who are the truth that is assumed by the book that is my channel. If you'd like it to be true, even in the face of a bunch of evidence to the contrary, you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar per week over at patreon.com slash vice If you feel so inclined, you can also support the channel through direct donation or my Amazon wishlist, which are linked in the description. If you'd like to listen to my videos in podcast form or listen to my podcast with my daughter, the links for those are also in the description as well as to my social media accounts and my P.O. Box address. See you next time. How many creator gods would a creator god creator create if creator god creator could create creator gods?